0: Good morning. Good, morning. good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. Um, if you'll keep your finger in uh, Philippians, we'll be back there in a little while. Um, but let's start off with the uh, Old Testament passage in 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19, I don't know, but many of you probably when you were growing up or even as parents you repeated the same thing to your kids is, You can be anything you want. You can do anything you want, just dream big. So the question that we have as Christians is what does that mean for us, right? Um, Does that same rule apply for us? And we're going to look at some examples today uh, from figures in the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New, where in fact the answer to that is no, we're not sufficient. We're not enough by ourselves. Let's start with the story of Elijah in chapter 19 of 1 Kings. And if you'll bear with me, the first half of this lesson is going to be a little somber. But just stay with me, and when we get to the second half, it'll get much better. Chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. That is, she was promising to kill Elijah. And he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die, and said, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, arise, eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread, bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again, The angel of the Lord came to him again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. Even after all that Elijah had done, and even if we just turn um, back one chapter, two chapters, we see the fantastic things that Elijah, Elijah had done with God's help. How he had defeated the prophets of Baal without any doubt that there was no questioning that God was in control that God was the ultimate power and the ultimate authority. And yet, even so, with all of that success just recently under his belt, Elijah still said, I give up. It's too much for me. It's time for me to die. Even having seen all of the, the power that God had wielded, Elijah just did not have the faith to keep going. He was afraid. He was alone. He felt like he was the last prophet, that he felt that he had... He was at a point where he had to give up. There was nothing else for him to do. Let's turn over now to Job, the second chapter of Job. For those of you who are not familiar with the story of Job, and before I I get into the the book of Job itself, um, just a quick plug for the class, uh, the Bible study class in the morning. Uh, Jason's teaching the adult class up here. And if you have a chance, I would very much uh, encourage you to come. Uh, we're starting the, the book of Genesis. Uh, we, I think we got to the first verse today. Um, but uh, it's a good study. It's a, a lot of good discussion. Um, and I would encourage you for your development, um, either as a, as a believing Christian or somebody who's interested and wants to learn more, um, to take the time to come and spend with us in the morning. It's, it's an hour, and it'll be well worth your time uh, to interact and ask questions. It's a great dialogue and opportunity uh, to really deepen your faith and your understanding of the scriptures. Getting back to Job, the story of Job is is an age-old tale, Um, and it's the story that's well-known, at least the first chapter and the last chapter. A lot of people don't know much about the 40 chapters in between. Um, But the first chapter, the story of Job, set up very clearly. He's a man, and God even points him out to Satan, and it's in a very strange way. God says, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him. How would you like to have God point you out to Satan in that way? On the one hand, that'd be very flattering, right? There's nobody, I mean, I'm recognized by God Almighty as a a servant of his and following him. On the other hand, as we see in the next uh, chapter or two, it puts a lot of focus on Job. And now Satan is given free reign first to everything that Job owns and then to everything that Job is. But he can't kill Job. That's the one limitation that God has put on Satan in his power over Job. And so we we see in the end of the the first chapter um, the the lament that Job puts up for his condition. And he said in verse verse 20 of the first chapter, And then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the last verse in chapter 1, he says, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And in the second chapter, we see that Job loses all of his health. He has boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Uh, tremendously painful condition he even takes shards of pottery and scrapes off the sores of his skin just for some relief can't imagine how horrible that would be uh, that condition and even in verse 9 of chapter 2 his wife has has hit the breaking point before he did and his wife has a simple solution for all of Job's problems curse God and die just give up What's the point? Why bother keeping on going? Look at all that you've lost. You had all of this wealth and the fame, and you've lost it all. Just curse God and die. And even it seems that Job himself has gotten to that point of despair. We see that his friends have come to visit him. In verse 11, we see his three friends have come, and they sympathize with him. And in verse 13 of chapter 2, and they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. And just as a side note, if you have some time, I'd suggest taking a look at Genesis chapter 50 and verse 10. Joseph spent seven days and seven nights mourning for his father when his father died. So for Job's friends to spend seven days and seven nights in silence with Job, it was like Job had already died. It was like Job had already given up and he had already gone beyond the point of all hope. And in fact, if we turn over to chapter 3, Job himself voices that same thought. In verse 11, why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me and why the breast that I should suck? For now I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept in and I would have been at rest. With kings and with counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, with the princes who had gold, who were filling their houses with silver, or like a miscarriage which is discarded, I would not be as infants that never saw light." Job himself has gone to the point where he's given up and he wished that he had never been born. Terrible feeling of loss, of pain, of emptiness, of loneliness. And yet, as the scriptures tell us, in all this, Job did not curse God. So we see in the story of Elijah, somebody who had such power through God working through him, who was able to do some miraculous things. And Job, who had so much and lost it all. Um, We see the trials that they go through and the doubts that they have and the issues that they're dealing with their loss and their emptiness. But let's turn over to the New Testament. Let's turn to chapter 4 of Matthew. Chapter 4 of Matthew. chapter 4 in the very first few verses start with the temptation of Jesus I don't know about you but when I was a kid and I was growing up I thought why would Jesus need to be tempted what's the point Jesus is the son of God right I mean certainly it's no use for Jesus to be tempted What's what's the value in that what's the purpose for that what does that have to do with Jesus going to the cross and dying for me And yet we see that the temptation that Jesus had, he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in verse 2. I don't know about you, but I can't last a couple of days without eating. I mean, I know I eat pretty well, but 40 days and 40 nights without food and water? It's amazing that he could continue. And yet at the end of that period, after he'd gone 40 days and 40 nights, then he's tempted Why couldn't he be tempted at the beginning, right? When he was already full and he wasn't the first temptation that he he gets. He says, well, just make these stones into bread. Satan uh, says, can you imagine the hunger that he had at that point? How simple it would have been just to take one little stone and make it into a loaf of bread. And then he wouldn't have been hungry anymore. He would have been filled almost immediately. It was nothing for him to do that. So simple, so easy. He could have done that. Very easily. But we see the temptation that he had if we turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. The reason that Jesus was tempted and the reason that he went through these temptations is so that we would have a way to relate to him and that he would have a way to relate to us. Surely he was the son of God. There's no doubting that. But he also, as we heard in Philippians, he came in the form of a man. He came in human form, and he lived with us here on earth. And even in chapter 4 of Hebrews in verse 14, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, And the hope comes at the very end of that verse, and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. So even Jesus himself suffered temptation so that he could relate with us, so that we could relate with him. And yet there's one way that Jesus suffered that we couldn't possibly imagine. And that was his hanging on the cross and the pain that he went through, suffering on the cross, to die for us. If we turn over to Matthew chapter 27, let's see the suffering that Jesus went through for us. Matthew chapter 27. In times of crucifixion, it was common for screams and for shouts, um, for cries of of pain and despair to be heard from those who were hanging on the cross. And surely it was a most horrendous and horrific way to die, uh, essentially being suffocated while you're hanging on the cross. In verse 46, and it says, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Puzzling words from the Son of God. Why would Jesus say that God has forsaken him? If you're familiar with the account, and it, um, and it says even in verse 47, some were calling for Elijah because of Eli, Eli being mistaken for Elijah's name. But what Jesus is doing here is he's quoting Psalm 22. Let's turn over to Psalm 22 briefly, just to understand the context for that. Psalm 22. Most of us know the 23rd Psalm, but the 22nd is a little less well-known. The very first verse of Psalm 22 is what Jesus was quoting. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I have no rest. If we look at the two stories we've already seen, we look at Elijah's plight, he's fleeing from Jezebel. We look at Job's plight, who's lost everything. We can easily imagine these words coming out of their mouths. Job saying, I cry by day, but you do not answer. For 40 chapters, Job repeatedly demands an answer from God. He demands a legal response to a plea. What have I done to cause this? Elijah himself sits there and says, it's too much for me. I give up. Just let me die rather than going on. Jesus himself, when he hangs on the cross, he quotes these words from Psalms and mentions the same thought, why have you abandoned me? One last example from the New Testament. We're all familiar with the accounts, the exploits of Paul, the amazing things that he did. Let's turn over to Second Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians chapter 11. Reading verses 23 through 28. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if I'm crazy. I am more so, in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night have I spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship, through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, apart from such external things. There is the daily pressure of me for concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? And if we turn over to the next chapter, verses 7 and 8 of chapter 12. Therefore, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that I might leave me. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the account in chapter um, 11, at the end of chapter 11, the list of things that Paul had suffered amazing challenges, pain, fearing for his life repeatedly a number of times. How many times has he gone through this? And how many times has he come out? So when I hear that he had begged God three times to take away this thorn in the flesh, we're not talking about a small pain. We're not talking about some inconsequential uh, issue that can't easily be solved. This was something that was deeply troubling Paul. And for somebody who had already gone through such physical turmoil and challenges, life-threatening situations numerous times, the one time that he asks God to take it away from him, and God doesn't do it. So what we see here is that the, the challenges that we have Elijah had, Job had, Christ himself had, and now Paul. And each of these times, they're pleading for release. They're praying praying and asking for some kind of salvation, some kind of um, fix to the problem. Here's the second half. God provides. In each of these situations, Elijah couldn't solve his problem. Job couldn't solve his problem. Job didn't even understand his problem. Christ himself couldn't solve his problem. And Paul was not able to take away his own thorn in the flesh. And when when I say that about each of these people, it's because they're examples for us. But in each of these four examples and numerous other ones that we'll see in the scriptures, God provides. How did God provide for Elijah? In 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 8. 1 Kings 19:8, it says, And so Elijah arose and ate and drank. And went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Just as Christ had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, this meal that Elijah took, this small meal, a simple meal that God provided, lasted him 40 days and 40 nights. A miraculous measure by any account. Elijah was delivered because God provided If we turn to Job chapter 41, as we mentioned earlier, I appreciate the comments on Job in class this morning. Job's problem was he didn't understand. He simply wanted an explanation. He wanted an answer. He wanted it to make sense. In chapter 41, God describes the creation of two creatures that even now, we don't know exactly what they are. The Leviathan and the Behemoth. And God said, I created these creatures. And frankly, it was easy for me to do. Can you imagine creating anything similar to that? Of course not. The power that God has exhibited by creating these creatures, these massive creatures, simply shows his awesome power. And Job, when he finally came to the realization that the answer that he was looking for was not why he was suffering, but simply that God is in control. In chapter 42, in the first six verses of chapter 42, Job realizes that God is the answer. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes." Job realizes the question he was looking for the whole time was, God is in control. And as soon as Job realizes that, the answer makes sense. Now let's turn back to Matthew chapter 6, where we saw the temptation that Jesus was going through from Satan. what hope do we have of escaping temptation? Well, we see the best and most evident hope of escaping temptation is what Christ himself used by quoting scripture. And therefore, it goes without saying that in order to quote scripture, in order to use scripture to resist temptation, we need to have scripture in our hearts and our minds. It's not sufficient when we have a temptation to say, oh, temptation, hold off for a minute. Let me go study for a little bit so that I can resist this temptation. God has given us a way of escape, but even Satan himself can take and twist scripture and answer in devious ways. But Christ himself faithfully used scripture to answer the temptations that he had. And if we turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we see the hope that we have that every time we have a temptation, we have hope. It may not seem like it in the midst of temptation. It may not even seem evident in the time of temptation. But in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians and verse 13, an amazingly powerful but simple verse that we should take to heart No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. That's a powerful promise that we have from God, that he will provide a way of escape from every single temptation. So the next time that you feel like you should do something that you really know you shouldn't do, you get that little voice in the back of your mind that says, oh, it's no big deal. Realize that there's a way of escape, that you've been promised a way out of that temptation and a way to be faithful, to remain faithful. And we even see that in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 11, Mark chapter 1 and verse 13, that Jesus was ministered to by the angels after the temptation. God provided the strengthening ministering of angels for Christ after he was tempted. A powerful proof that God had not left Jesus. And even so, when he's hanging on the cross and he remembers the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me that were penned by the psalmist? What does that mean? Why would he say that? Well, there's a common way of interpreting scripture to say if you quote a passage that you're frankly quoting the entire passage. And so, if you are familiar with the Psalms, Psalm 22, it's a story that proceeds from the beginning that we heard on the cross to the very end of Psalm 22. Let's turn back there for a minute. Psalm 22, verses 25 through 31. The end of the Psalm we read, From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him, The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship, and all those who go down to the dust will bow down before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. Now, after all this time, you still have your finger over in Philippians chapter 2. This is the time to flip back. Philippians chapter 2, we have the promise. What is the promise that we see in Philippians chapter 2? I didn't leave my finger in Philippians, so it's going to take me a minute to turn back there. So what is the promise that we have in Philippians chapter 2? In verse 10, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and of those who are in the heavens, and those who are on the earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. Isn't that just what we heard in Psalm chapter 22, in verse 27? All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. In verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship, and those who go down to the dust will bow down before him. That same prayer, that same uh, psalm that was spoken by Jesus on the cross, ultimately ends in every knee bowing to him after his ultimate victory. And that is the consummation, that is the completion of the promise that God has given to Christ. And so even the last uh, example that we have is Paul in his suffering and praying for this thorn in the flesh to be taken away. What is the resolution to his problem? Let's turn back to to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And we'll see, in fact, that this is something that Paul was already very familiar with. Starting in verse um, 8, we'll recap. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it, that being the thorn in the flesh, might leave me. And he said, God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And even we see that uh, also in chapter 11 and verse 30 where he says, If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. So Paul himself realizes that the whole that he has, that he cannot sufficiently answer the call, answer the challenge with his own strength and with his own power, with his own might. But he needs to empty himself and he needs to realize that his weakness is the opportunity for God's strength. So we see some ways here that, we, that characters in the New Testament and the Old Testament have suffered. They've gone through some terrible trials. They've reached the breaking point, the, the time when they want to just give up they want to lay down and die. They've, they've suffered unimaginable, loss, unimaginable losses. They've come to the point where all hope seems to be gone. And yet in each and every case, God has responded and God has provided. So we get to the, what I like to call the so what part of the sermon. So this is all fine for book knowledge, right? It's all fine for uh, reading and for in- information, But as long as the Bible just remains another book on the bookshelf, as long as it's just another set of letters to read, um, there's no connection, there's no application. So in building that bridge from what God has inspired to how we're living our lives, we need to make that application and apply what God has shown in Scripture to the hope that we can have in our life. So the so what part of this is... Um, I don't know about you, but I've suffered doubt in my life, many different ways. I've never been running from a crazy woman who wanted to kill me, thankfully. My wife will be very happy to hear that. Um, I've never had to fear for my life. Um, I've never been the last person alive uh, in any category, right? And fearful to be the last person and and about to die. Um, I've never um, experienced loss of everything that I have, Um, I've never uh, been crucified, never hung on a tree. Um, I've never had such a painful challenge and affliction that I've begged God to take it away from me numerous times. And yet, in the challenges that I have, which seem so amazingly small in comparison, God has said he will answer, he will provide. And if he's going to answer the doubt of a prophet if he's going to answer uh, the, one of the most respected men on the earth that in his own words um, that he has shown, if he's going to fill that void, if he's going to bring his son back from the dead, and if he's going to answer Paul, maybe not in a way that Paul liked, but in a way that, that filled the void, that bridged that gap, how much more will he do that for me? And how much more would he do that for each one of us? in making that connection, in making that realization that God will provide. He will fill the void. But we have to recognize that. We have to realize that we're not up for the journey by ourselves. We are not sufficient for the challenges that are going to come up. We are not able to answer it on our own. We have to realize that our strength is not from us, but from God working through our weakness. And that's where we get our power from him working through us and it's the same way that we as family members here in this body work together when there are there are parts of our lives that are not functioning properly when there are challenges that we have um, for you know the old adage is if you hit your thumb with a, a, a hammer none of you, the rest of your body will hurt because all you will recognize is that one thumb All of the focus and attention goes to the point that needs attention, needs focus. But without a body working together, we're not able to do that. We're not able to sufficiently answer that call or that challenge or to meet that need. So what we're doing here is we're looking forward to the life and the hereafter. And one last passage, as we've looked already in Philippians chapter 2, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And I'll finish with this passage and ask you to think of what this means for you in your life as a Christian. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, he continues just, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water but the word but by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men but let not let no one But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise... We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of those things in which some of these things are hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, And Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And it's that call that we have, to look to the day of eternity that we have been promised, to be faithful, to remain steadfast, and realizing that it's not our own strength, it's not our own power, our own might, that will make us reach that final line. But it's our dependency, our complete reliance, and utter uh, need of god himself to fill that void to be our strength when we are weak it's that promise that we have to look forward to if you have not answered the call if you have not put christ on in baptism if you have not clothed uh, him on you and washed away the sins that have stained your soul this is a wonderful opportunity to take that uh, step forward to be baptized to wash away your sins if you have but you've fallen away if you need our prayers you need the strength and the comfort of your brothers and sisters here in this body, uh, this is an opportunity for that as well. Won't you come make your needs known as we stand and sing?